Well, again, thank you guys for being here. Thanks to all of you who braved the elements to come out and show up. Uh, those of you that are watching on the stream, we brought the stream back uh, this evening because there were several people that texted and were like, hey, I'm not risking my life for this church service, so I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch the stream. So we put the stream back up. So again, welcome to all of you uh, who came. But uh, I'm, I'm extra happy about the people that... Uh, that risked it to come here in person. Um, I really appreciate that, so shout out to you guys. Um, this is a, a new sermon series we're starting. This is the first one of a, of a new series. You can see the title of this whole series on your handout there. It's called Living the Dream. This is a phrase that I hear a lot of people say all the time, really sarcastically. Whenever you ask people, you're like, hey man, how are you doing? They're always like, oh, living the dream, you know, just say it really, really sarcastically. But um, I really believe that um, the Christian life, that to really live the Christian life is to, to do that, to, to be able to say that not in a sarcastic way, but to actually be able to live um, the dream, specifically the dream that God had for us. I was in Dallas with, uh, with my wife Adrienne recently, and we were at this coffee shop, and we were rereading um, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, because um, that's just what Adrian and I do on our date nights, is we just <laughs> look up historical speeches. I don't know if you guys have ever read it, but you should, you should check it out. You should really read it. Um, I heard this crazy fact about that speech that I had never heard before, which is that that whole I Have a Dream section was like ad-libbed. It was off the cuff. That wasn't actually the original part of the speech. You can actually go watch the recording and you can find that for the whole like first few minutes of the speech, um, Dr. King was was kind of bombing. Like it was awful. Like people were just like, this is so boring. You know, they weren't really into it. You could tell people weren't really into it. And the story goes that there, one of the people that was standing right behind him who had heard him speak before and had heard him speak with like real passion and real vigor about this this dream for the future that he had she, she kind of like nudged him. She said, hey, t tell him about the dream. <laughs> like, just, this speech is awful. Get, stop doing that. Tell him about the dream. And so then he jumps into the famous section that all of you have heard, the, the famous I have a dream speech, where he gives this, this amazing vision of, 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 of a future that he's envisioning um, past all of the racial segregation in, in the United States. And it's unfortunate that we live in Memphis, a city that a lot of people have, um, is famous for the death of that dream and for a lot of people. You know, it's the, the city where Dr. King was assassinated. It's the city where I see a lot of people feel like there's just a death of whether it's the, the American dream they had for prosperity, for safety, for thriving, whether, whatever dreams that they may have. I, I've talked to so many people who feel like this city is a place where dreams come to die. I remember being in high school and talking to all of my friends at, in, at, at Germantown High, and all of them were just ready to leave. Like the first, like every single one of them were just like, I cannot wait till I can leave this city and pursue my dreams. But the reality is that I really think that it is exactly in a place like this, exactly in a city like this, that the dream that God has for us, for people, for humanity, for his kingdom, can most come true. It is exactly 
in a place like this. So this sermon series, I'm going to be kind of pers- uh, expanding upon that a little bit, a little bit about what I see as my, my hope, my dream for why we wanted this church to start, what we wanted this church to be about, and the dream that I think that God has for his people and for his kingdom that I think can be true here uh, in our church and in our city. I got the uh, opportunity uh, recently to, uh, I was talking to some friends, talking to them about traveling outside of Memphis, going to other cities, getting to experience other countries. And I got the experience to tell them about my dad's experience going to the country of Uruguay. Um, For those of you who don't know, my dad was a missionary in Uruguay, in South America. That's where I was born. He met my mom down there. Um, And he spent, uh, I, I got the official number just a few days ago. He said 18 years, right? 18 years uh, doing mission work in Uruguay. It's super cool, really exciting. The wildest part was that I had never heard the story of how he went to Uruguay until, uh, until recently. You know, as a kid, he just never told me this story. But um, he basically told me about how the fact that he was the only, ki- only guy at the whole school that was into missions, wanted to be a missionary. And originally, he was planning on going to, was it Uganda? U- U- Uganda was where he wanted to go. Um, which uh, at the time there was like this like cannibal dictator in Uganda. So that was already crazy enough that that was like, he was like, yeah, that's the place I want to go. But he happened to go to this conference, met another guy who started a really cool organization called Team Expansion. And this guy convinced him, he's like, hey man, you should think about this country, Uruguay, instead of Uganda. Now, he had never heard of Uruguay just like most of you probably hadn't unless you've met me because I talk about it all the time. But Uruguay, this tiny little country, the whole country is basically the size of the state of Arkansas. It's very famous for um, cattle and beef. Uh, the stat I always like to give people, just there's about 3 million people in the whole country of Uruguay. That's kind of like the Memphis metro area, imagine. <laughs> That's just the entire country. That's everybody that lives there. There's 9 million cows. So there are three cows for every one person in the country of Uruguay. Now, if you're a big, like, beef eater, you're like, that sounds awesome, that's exciting. If you're vegan, like Justin Reagan, that just sounds like, that's not my, not, not, not my vibe. But it, it's, uh, it, it, that's their big claim to fame. It's this cattle-eating, meat-eating country of just a few people that nobody's ever heard of. But the fact that really got my dad to go there was that it was the most atheistic country in, in all of South America. A lot of people think of South American countries as being uh, primarily Catholic, which they are. Uruguay, they're just, they don't even try to pretend. They're just like, no, we're not Catholic, we're not anything. We just, we just don't believe in any of that. It was one of the most secular countries. And so he felt like it was a good opportunity to go there and to, to uh, minister to those people. The, I knew all of that before. The part of the story I never heard was that when he first went, he didn't know anyone else in Uruguay. He sort of had like this one um, somewhat acquaintance, another missionary guy, another Baptist missionary that was doing some work there. They sort of knew of each other. Um, and, and that was it. He just bought a one-way plane ticket and was going to go to Uruguay. But then, on top of that, not only did he not know anybody, he didn't speak Spanish, which I did not really realize. The, the entire country of Uruguay, they speak Spanish, my dad had taken a few classes in high school. Those of you that took Spanish classes in high school will, tell, you will know that doesn't prepare you at all for going in to do mission work in another country. He had taken a few classes in high school. That was the extent of his um, Spanish training. 
And he just went. Just trusted that God would help him out. He got off the plane, he said, and he like used sign language to hail a taxi and try to tell the guy he needed to go to the U.S. Embassy. The guy took him to the U.S. Embassy. He found like a bulletin board where he pulled the piece of paper off for like an apartment that was for rent and went like back to the taxi guy and was like, take me to this apartment. And so they took him to that apartment and again, using sign language and the little bit of Spanish he knew, he told the people, the landlord of that apartment that he wanted to rent it, rented the apartment and he was in Uruguay. And that's how his mission journey started. How many of you think you could do that? If I told you there's another country that you're gonna go to, you thought like, yeah, I could do that. I don't speak the language, I don't know anybody there. Buy me the one-way plane ticket, let's make it happen. Do any of you feel like that's the thing you could do? Well, I'll make it easy on you. I know I could not do that. That is not my uh, personality. That's not the way I work. I'm anxious enough about all of the regular everyday things that I do. I, I could not even possibly imagine doing that. It's so shocking whenever I remember hearing that for the first time. My dad was telling me that story. But when I, I kind of picked his brain, I was trying to figure out why, why did he do that? How did he do this, this crazy uh, impossible to imagine thing. He told me about a different book that he had read um, by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a book that was called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a famous book. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously is one of the uh, Christians who resisted uh, the Nazis in Germany and actually ended up uh, being killed because of that resistance. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship that my dad said he read early in his uh, college years that really got him thinking about what it really means to follow Jesus, what it really means to uh, take up your cross every day, sacrifice for others, not put your own needs and yourself first, but to think about other people. And he told me that the more he's, that during that time of his life, he just really remembers really realizing these people need to hear the gospel. These people need to hear the good news of Jesus. And my comfort, what I want, is uh, of less importance than that, uh, the needs of others, the needs of other people. And that was always, uh, it's, it's really impressive to me. I'm really thankful to, that my dad can represent that legacy for me of, uh, of, of putting the needs of others before him. But when he was trying to explain it to me, he brought up a concept that he, a phrase he used to use all the time when I was growing up as a kid. And it's this first blank in your handout if you want to fill it out. This is the way that he specifically says he got this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the kingdom of God, the way that my dad described the kingdom of God. And it was this understanding that helped him make these sacrifices to go overseas. And it was specifically, he called it the upside down kingdom. The upside-down kingdom is the way that he, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, described the kingdom of God. I thought of a good example to illustrate kind of what, what this looks like, even just here recently, um, with all the snow and ice. I don't know if you've ever driven on snow and ice, but when you start to slide, um, you, you know, you're turning right and the, the back end of your car starts sliding the other way. They always tell you the way you get out of a slide, the way you stop sliding on the ice, is you have to like turn into the slide. So if you're about to go off the bridge this way, you actually have to turn your wheel towards the, <laughs> off the bridge to be able to stop that slide. You have to do this counterintuitive thing of turning your wheel towards the direction you don't want to go to get it to stop going 
that direction. It's this weird situation that's kind of counterintuitive to everything you were taught whenever you were driving. You have to turn one way to, to, to stop going that way. It's, it's, it's illogical. It's the opposite of what you think. It's upside down. It's reversed to what things should be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that this is the reality of the kingdom of God. It's upside down. It's different. It's actually the opposite. It's counterintuitive. It's illogical to the way that you think things should be. And nowhere do I think this is more clear and more obvious than in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in, going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. And I just want to read these verses for you again. In, 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 in thinking in this context, this is the, the upside-down kingdom, the reverse of what you would think would be logical. And Jesus starts his most famous sermon by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not the type of message that, if I'm being honest, I heard growing up in church. I've grown up in church. And been to a lot of different churches. Even over the last few years as I've been working at Mid-South Christian College, the campus that we're at right now, um, I've traveled to a lot of churches um, to, to present the school and just fundraise for us and different things like that. And it's interesting, the messages that I hear from most Christians, from most church people, there's a lot of phrases I hear that I started to kind of write them down, kind of categorize them out. And realize that they were the, the opposite, actually, of what Jesus says here. The first one, let me, let me just take it one by one. I'll give you some, some, some churchy phrases that I've heard before, and you guys can see. These are, every single one of these phrases I've heard somebody in church say at some point or another. And I think it's the actual opposite of what Jesus said. So let's start with the first one. He says, blessed are the poor. I actually once heard a church talk about, no, 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 you need... It's the top earners are the people, the, the rich, because they can tithe and they can keep your church going. Those are the people that you need more of in your church. You need more uh, top earners so that they can tithe. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, says Jesus. And actually, I always hear this phrase. Eh, it's not about mourning. It's about praise. It's about praise. You come to church, uh, the praises go up, the blessings come down. That's exactly what I hear all the time at church. Praises go up, blessings come down. Church is about coming to praise. How many worship leaders do you hear? They're always just like, let's be joyful. Let's praise. Let's praise in the house of the Lord today. That's the things that I heard. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus, but instead what I would hear in church often is blessed are the, the strong, especially the strong men, because they can protect their households. Pick up chairs, exactly. <laughs> blessed are those who, who thirst and hunger for righteousness, who want things to be made right, who want righteousness. That's not what I heard in church. I would hear that, you know, you shouldn't play the victim. Blessed are those who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, not the ones who complain about how unfair the world is. You just 
You just grit your teeth and you make it happen. Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful. But I would hear sermons and things in churches about how people should be uh, punished for what they do wrong. Because if you let these people get away with it, they're just going to keep doing more and more of bad. We need more and more punishment for evildoers, not mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, says Jesus. And instead, I would hear these stories, people praising how... uh, crafty and smart these businessmen were in their churches who managed to get out of taxes and managed to do all these things to, to, uh, to, to, to be like wise and crafty rather than just simple and pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, says Jesus, but rather I grew up hearing about blessed are those who are going to stand up and fight for truth, who are going to stand up against heresy and stand up and fight against the uh, evils and perils in the world. And ultimately, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And that's not the way that our church looks at it. The second we start to experience hardships, persecution, or anything like that, we, uh, we fight to try to make, uh, make our lives comfortable like they were before. I think the reality is that in a lot of our churches, we are preaching a kingdom that makes sense a lot of those phrases just kind of make sense on, on, on the surface level. If, if you said most of those things to most regular people, you would be like, hey, do you think it's right for, for people who do evil to get uh, punished, or should they be shown mercy? Everybody would be like, oh, punish the evildoers. That's the right thing to do. It's logical. But Jesus is flipping things completely on its head. He's flipping it upside down. He is showing that his kingdom is actually... Uh, reverse, upside down, completely different than the kingdom that people thought this Messiah was coming to bring. And this is why I think Jesus so often says, you've heard it said, but, but I say to you. He's often telling them, look, you guys have heard this sort of thing that seems to make sense, that seems to be logical to you. But here is this crazy, counterintuitive, illogical, upside down kingdom way of looking at things. And this is what I want you to do instead. And so it was for that reason, like I said, that we wanted to, to do what we're doing here um, at Wayfarers. This has kind of been the, the heart or the vision behind a lot of, uh, of why we wanted to start it. I just, I, I, I have a lot of amazing friends. I love a lot of what the churches are doing in Memphis. I know a lot of uh, really, um, really great things that I believe God is doing through so many churches here in our city. But the reality is that so often the churches that I see in our city seem to be functioning just in like the, the basic, logical, regular kingdom way of thinking. And I don't feel like I have really fully, truly seen the upside down kingdom that Jesus promised, the dream for his kingdom. I don't feel like I've seen it at work in my own lifetime yet. And so, as we were thinking through it, I specifically was started to think of five different types of people that I felt like I did not see churches welcoming these types of people. These are, these are five different types of people that I felt like could not find a home in a lot of the churches that I had visited, churches that, again, I love, and I love those people there, but I just felt like these, these people couldn't find homes in those churches. And I feel like an upside-down kingdom type of church 
These are exactly the kind of people that would feel at home there. So we came up with like a funny little way to show it. We threw some emojis on the handout there that you can find out. So maybe you guys can sit here and try to think through, uh, try to guess maybe what some of these blanks are. But I'm going to go in and I'm going to fill in the blanks as we go through here. These are the five groups of people that I specifically have felt at the center of my heart for who we want to reach um, here at Wayfarers. The first one is the Wanderers. The name Wayfarers is kind of a weird church name. You know, it's a weird phrase that we don't use a lot of times. I actually have to give good credit to Noah. He's the one that came up with it originally. And I remember when he first told me the name, it just really stuck with me because it has this idea of, of, of being on a journey, of, of, of wandering. I once made the mistake of telling a group of homeschoolers that I wasn't a big fan of Tolkien, like that I just didn't really like Tolkien, and I, the room turned on me immediately. It was like the worst thing I could have possibly said. <laughs> I did make it out alive, but again, they just, you know, they, they, didn't, they weren't allowed to have their guns with them that day, so I guess that's why I got it out. But it just, I, I told them I didn't really like Tolkien, but there's this, there's this Tolkien phrase that's really popular. I've been, I've been remedying that. Many of them would be happy to know. I'm reading The Lord of the Rings right now. I'm like a few of the few, few chapters into uh, The Two Towers right now. And uh, I saw this phrase as I was reading through it, this um, quote I see all the time. Like people get tattoos of it and they put it on like uh, beautiful Instagram posts and different things like that. And it's this phrase that's a part of a song in The Lord of the Rings that says, not all who wander are lost. And... The rest of the song is really, really cool, but it's always just that one phrase that gets shared, and I think it gets shared by so many people. People get it tattooed. People post the Instagram posts about it because they really connect with it. I think that there really is something to the human experience of, of just being on a journey, of, of, of wandering, of not feeling at home. I remember I used to feel this most uh, acutely whenever I was... Um, playing music in like punk rock bands. I used to play in screamo bands. I always say the big holes in my ears is the only thing that's left from that era of my life. But the, the thing I always loved about the like punk rock community that I was a part of is that so many of them, it was, it was emotional, it was emo, it was sad, it was all this kind of music, but it was because they did not feel content with the status quo, with the way things were. They felt like they were looking for something more than what they could find here. And I think this is a, a, a message that Jesus gets to a lot. He's always saying, he, he himself describes himself as somebody who doesn't have a place to lay his head, who um, is always kind of just wandering from one place to another. A lot of times the people that Jesus is fighting the most against are the people who are the most comfortable right where they are. The people who feel at home, who feel content, who are good. It's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good where I'm at right now. And Jesus says, I can't work with that. <laughs> if you're comfortable in this world, if you're comfortable with what you see, if this is good for you, I can't work with that. Jesus wants people who realize that this, is, this can't be all there is. This can't be all that exists. I want, I want more. I want to experience more. There's got to be better than this. And those are the people that I think wander from place to place, are always journeying, are never content, are always moving. And I really think that there is something beautiful about that. 
But it's a difficult group of people to reach, right? If you're constantly moving, if you're always changing, if you're always looking for something else, it is uh, difficult to reach. Most churches would rather have the people who are comfortable, rooted, content right here. But I really think that there is something about the upside-down kingdom in people who wander. So the first one is the wanderer. The second one is the wonders, with an O, not an A. Wonders. You're going to notice a trend here. There's going to be some good old Baptist preacher alliteration here in all of these. Um, But I also want to give some credit to Mikey and a little bit to Jordan. They both helped me come up with these. They didn't realize they did. We were just talking about as we just had conversations. All right, you knew where I was going with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were just talking about who we wanted to reach uh, as a church, and they kind of helped me come up with this, these pithy phrases that I think really, really help encapsulate a lot of this. So I wanted to make sure I give credit to them. But the wonderers. These are the people that ask questions, the people that want to ask questions. Do you realize that Jesus asks over 300 questions in the scriptures? Over 300 times, Jesus asks a question to somebody. And people ask Jesus a lot of questions, too. Over, I I calculated something like 183 times, somebody asks Jesus a question. Do you know how many times he answers a question? Three times. (laughs) He's asked 183 questions, and he directly answers it three times. The rest of the time, he usually answers a question with another question. (laughs) Or sometimes he might tell him a story. He might be like, somebody says, hey, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he'll say, well, there was this guy this one time. And he just, he, he goes into a story as a way to answer question. I think Jesus loves people who ask questions, who ask good questions. I want to give credit. There's another church here in town called Oikos. Um, Smith Hopkins is the preacher there. He always says he has two last names, Smith Hopkins. Uh, He's the one that first put me on to those facts about how many questions Jesus asks. And he recommended a book. uh, It's called Jesus is the Question. Uh, It's something that really like delves into that idea of how many questions Jesus asks. And the reason that book title is so stuck in my head is because it's the opposite. What have you heard most of your life? Jesus is the answer. And that's really what we have made a lot of our churches to be. Our churches are places where you can go and you can find answers. And our sermons are about giving you answers to the questions you might have. And if you start asking questions that we don't have answers for, you get pushed out. (laughs) You get redirected somewhere else. You get told, ah, people start questioning your motives maybe and they say oh why would you ask that question unless you you have the wrong motives and I really really firmly believe that that is not the way that Jesus works I think Jesus loves questions I think Jesus would have been so excited to see how many questions people are asking I think the scriptures themselves are set up to get us to to ask questions. They're not clear and clean and super simple. If you've ever really started reading the Bible, it's going to bring up some questions. I've never known anybody who can sit and actually tell me that they have read the Bible and had not had questions be brought up by the scriptures. And the reality is that I want to see a community that leans into that, that helps people ask better questions, continue to ask questions, continue to wonder, continue to, to, to seek after God and after truth in that way, because that's the thing that I think really leads you to where you need to be. I want to shut down those questions. I want to be a place for those wanderers. 
The third one is the weary, or sorry, the wary. I'm skipping one. The wary, W-A-R-Y. Wary is another one of those words that just kind of, it's like I'm, I'm wary of something. I'm, I'm kind of keeping it at arm's length. I'm suspect of it. I'm skeptical of it. There's this um, podcast that was really popular, became really popular, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which was about this huge megachurch called Mars Hill Church. Mark Driscoll was the uh, founding minister of that church who helped kind of help get that church started. And this story was all about just all of the like trail of destruction that was left behind uh, this church as it, as it exploded, as it grew. Um, there was uh, all of these unhealthy things as a part of that church, and all of those things ended up hurting a lot of people. Mark Driscoll famously um, described the church he was at as being like this bus, and you had two options to either get on the bus or be run over by the bus. And that, that's what he said. That's just how he described what his church was like. And this podcast was just kind of started to give people who were left behind in that trail of destruction a... A, a place to share their stories and talk about some of the hurt that they had experienced at that church. And unfortunately, this has been a trend that I'm seeing across all kinds of churches, not just these big mega churches, but all kinds of other churches. There's just this trail of destruction of all these people that are being left behind, uh, get run over by those buses. There's a, a crazy stat I shared with you all in my last sermon that's really been impacting me. There were thousands of people that came to be Christians during the uh, first and second great awakenings. There were these big revivals in the historical time of the U.S. A lot of people credit those with being a big part of why America is such a Christian nation now. We had these big revivals where thousands of people came to be Christians. You can look them up. It's the first and second great awakening. If you counted up all of the people that have uh, left the church in the last 10 years, people that used to be parts of the church and are no longer in the church, that number is greater than all all of the people that came to know Christ during the first and second great awakening. More people have left the church in the last 10 years than all of the people that came to know Christ in those two revivals. And I just see churches constantly, it feels like, explaining this away, trying to, again, question the motives and the hearts behind people and different things like that, rather than recognize that there is something wrong when our own churches are pushing people away and hurting people and pushing them away from the kingdom. And so I think there's a lot of people that don't want to come to church, not because they have any issue with Jesus or the gospel or any of that kind of stuff, but because they have been hurt by church people, and they're wary of church. Because they're like, I'm not going back into that place to be hurt again by the same kind of people in the same kind of way that I was hurt before. And I think that that's valid. I totally understand that fear. And I wanted to, to create a space where we can minister to those people and help them to uh, overcome some of that wariness, hopefully actually get a taste of the dream. The fourth point is the weary. This one is the one that I started, the, the first sermon I ever preached at Wayfarers was about, um, I started it by just saying, I'm tired. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel tired. I'm so tired of arguments of division. I'm so tired of uh, politics and political divisions. Adrian and I were talking about Republican primaries on the way up here, and I was just, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm just tired of, 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 of that. I was 
it was right in the middle of COVID whenever we started, and at that point, I was already tired of of all of the division over that, and even just some of the 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 strain and things that I was feeling at that point in time. And I just think that um, when you get to that point where you can just be like, I, I, I don't have the energy. I don't know what else to do. I'm at the end of my rope. I actually think that is the moment when God is the most able to step in and, and work. Lots of times... We try to, to build things using our own strength, our own intelligence, our own cunning. And it's actually at the point to where we realize those things fall short. And we come and we just tell the Lord, I'm tired. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> That's the moment when God can really step in and do something. I've been using as a benediction verse the last few months, the famous verse Jesus says, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's crazy how often that is the word that God uses to describe his kingdom, <laughs> is rest, Sabbath rest. For the tired and weary, Jesus uh, offers you rest. And the last one is the craziest one here. It's the weird. Fifth point here is the weird. Um, I remember especially thinking about this when I uh, uh, was first introduced years ago to that crazy mural in Portland they have where it says, keep Portland weird. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. You should look it up. They just have this huge famous mural in Portland that says, keep Portland weird. Um, Austin, Texas kind of tried to co-opt it too. And there's also a giant mural in Austin now that says, keep Austin weird. And, um, you know, they're all, the, the message they were all kind of getting behind is they were kind of, uh, they were tired of all of these new corporate businesses coming in and all of this new gentrification that they were seeing around. They're like, no, 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 we like the weird quirkiness uh, about our city. We want to keep the weirdness. Don't get rid um, of the weirdness. It was especially funny to me, again, that Austin, Texas later decided to kind of try to co-opt that and make that their, their own thing, you know, keep Austin weird. Because the reality is, um, is why I, brought, I started kind of this whole thing just talking about our city and how everybody I know is just like ready to leave. They're ready to get out of here, ready to go somewhere else. And it's, it's, it's the weirdness, it's the quirkiness, it's the uniqueness of Memphis, of our city, that I think that I have most started to fall in love with. I remember when I was doing my master's, Adrian and I spent a year living in Orlando, Florida, and everybody was like, oh, that was probably awesome, right? Did you guys love Florida? Did you guys love Orlando? Like, that's where everybody goes to vacation. You guys got to live there for a year. Was it amazing? It was awful. I hated it. It was, the, it was like Adrian and I basically said... It really just felt, it's that kind of Disney perfection just expanded to a whole city. It just felt like it was just kind of this like, just a little too perfect, just a little too clean, just a little too uh, lifeless. And I remember driving back into Memphis after this year in Orlando, and there were perfect roads, perfect everything in Orlando. And I remember we hit the first massive pothole, literally as we crossed over the Memphis <laughs> it was like city limits into Memphis. And it was just like, you hit this huge pothole and it was just 
it felt like home. <laughs> it was like, here's the, here's the quirky, weird <laughs> reality of, my, of my, my home city. And I just, I felt like there's just this like gritty realness, this like soul to the city that is not perfect. It's not clean. It's not polished. It's not the destination city that everyone wants to vacation to. It's weird. But I actually think that that is incredible. And that is actually the places where you can most, I think, encounter the kingdom of God. I think that Jesus kept his eye out for the weird people, the ones that didn't fit, the ones that didn't fit the molds, the ones that weren't the, uh, the normal successful types. It was the weird people that he would notice and that he would minister to. And unfortunately, I think churches have the opposite effect. Churches want us to conform. You know, we have just kind of like this, this one general uh, mold that each type of church has. And when new people come in, if they're weird, they're like, let's knock that weirdness out of you. You got to be more like us. You got to seem more like what we want you to be. Quit being weird. And the reality is that I think that it's that uniqueness, that quirkiness, that weirdness, that, uh, the, the ways that God made each of us. It's when you, when you allow those differences to, to most be magnified, I think is when you start to kind of see them all work together into the, the real dream, the real vision of the kingdom. I think by sometimes flattening out the uniqueness and the weirdness and the creativity and differences between us, you're actually like losing the, the fuel, the power that makes the kingdom of God what it is. And so I know that this is the one that's the, the hardest sometimes for people to get behind is like what you want. You want a, a church of weird people? <laughs> it's like, yes, that's exactly what I want because that is exactly where I think uh, the kingdom of God can most be on display. I really struggled when I was putting together this sermon, trying to think through how I wanted to say these things, just because it can sound really negative. It can sound like I'm just really bashing what I see a lot of other churches doing, and, um, and like I'm saying that I've got it all figured out or something like that. And that's not, not at all the, the heart behind what I wanted to say. But the reality is that all of these things... The reason they've been so central to my heart, the reason I feel them so strongly is because I, I think I kind of fit in most of these categories <laughs> myself. Adrian and I once had this conversation we were talking about. We have so many friends. We love so many of the churches in town, but we just really felt like we would not feel at home in any of the churches that we have visited, any of the other places that we have been in the city. And we told ourselves at one point, they're like, even if it's just like four or five of us, we kind of want to do Wayfarers just because we need that for us too. <laughs> I, I, I feel like this is um, the type of church that I've been seeking and wanting. And I don't think that we've actually accomplished this necessarily. I think um, maybe some of you who have been a part of what we're doing have been able to see the, the seeds of some of this kind of stuff, but I don't really feel like the, the dream has fully uh, been realized yet. And I feel like it's going to take some, some real specific steps to kind of make that um, into a reality. 
But I don't want to keep you guys here for another like five hours to explain that. <laughs> so this is just a teaser. Uh, next week, I'm going to go into a little bit more of like the, the, uh, the steps that I think we want to take to make that dream a reality. So you have to come back, check that out. We won't be streaming next week, so if you're watching online, you got to come in person next week. Um, you can hear kind of these are the steps, the way that we want to kind of make that happen. But today, I just kind of wanted to, to paint that picture of exactly who we are uh, trying to reach. When I first started talking about doing Wayfarers, uh, a lot of people thought or sort of understood what we wanted to do as a church as like we were trying to reach young people. Like that was, we're planting a church to reach young people. And that's a part of it. That's been a big part of my heart for a long time, just because I've seen very few churches have success in reaching younger people, especially that like 18 to 29 age group is a group that I've seen just very few churches do a good job of reaching. But the reality is that it's, I think a lot of those people are going through a lot of the same, feeling a lot of the same angst, a lot of the same disconnect, a lot of the same difficulties that um, people throughout all kinds of other generations have felt. They just don't have the same social pressures that kind of like force them to stay in church and force them to conform. They feel a little more freedom to be able to just leave and do something else. I remember I was once giving a, uh, a pitch about this kind of church that I wanted to start to a guy who was in his 40s. And it was the first time I remember he, he looked at me and he was like, I, I feel all those things too. <laughs> he said, I've always felt that way as well. And I realized that, again, my heart is not really to plant a church just for young people. My heart is to plant a church for these types of people. <laughs> the people that I think, I think a lot of these words fit into the, that Beatitudes type way of being. The way that, um, the type of people that Jesus actually says are blessed. It's illogical. It's not the people that you would think. It's not... Uh, the people that most churches would have at kind of the center of their target. But I'm hopeful that if we truly put at the, the, the center of our target those types of people, these types of people, I think that we really will experience the blessings that Jesus promises here. Jesus says these are the kind of people that really are blessed. And I, for one, want to be a part of a church that gets to fully experience that blessing of God. And I don't think it happens unless you look for these upside-down and kingdom type of people. So let's pray and uh, finish up for today. Lord, I ask that you would help us Reaching these types of people is not something that we're going to be able to do on our own strength, through our own power, through our own logic and reason and our um, abilities and our um, uniqueness, but it's going to be something that is only done through the, the power, your power, the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you would um, supernaturally empower us to reach those kinds of people And that your blessings would be made um, manifest in our midst, in our church, as we go after the, the people that are um, 
maybe not the center, not the first people that you think about, but the people that I know are at the center of your heart, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.